Go ahead and grab a seat. We're going to continue our series called Shipwrecked. I'm going to ask us to use our imaginations today. We, we ended the story or ended the sermon last week. We were talking about Jonah and the story of Jonah. So we're just going to pick right up there. But I, I want you to do something. I want you to use your imagination for a moment. And remember the story of Jonah, how he was called as a prophet to go and preach basically a message that God gave him to the city of Nineveh because Nineveh was a wicked city. Nineveh had a whole lot of horrible things that were happening in the city and everybody who lived there, the Bible paints this kind of broad brush that there was just a lot of wickedness in the city. So it was a wicked city, a lot of wicked people in the city, a lot of wicked actions in the city. And God asked Jonah or told Jonah to go and to, uh, to tell them a message Let's just imagine for a moment that we are living in that city. Just imagine that you're one of the Ninevites in that city. And all you've known is the wickedness that's happened all around you. Your grandparents, your your dad, your mom, your brothers, your sisters. This was just the culture you live in. There's this wickedness all around, and it's so pervasive that it seems normal to you. That wicked, evil acts all the time even though there's probably something down deep on the inside of you that knows something is off about it, it's just what you do. And so you live in this city with wickedness all around. Your your grandparents have, your great-grandparents. This is just what happens in your city and what happens in your family, what happens in relationships. People are constantly taken advantage of. People are hurt. People are selfish. People are sinful. And then one day, this guy just starts walking through the city. And he just says this one simple message. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And he begins to walk through the city. You kind of hear him coming and you hear it get louder and then you hear it pass by you and then he just keeps walking. Yet, and all he says is, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then the king of Nineveh, or it was really a wider region that he was king over, he, in response to this one guy coming through the city, he responds this way in Jonah chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, it says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. This was a sign of repentance. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So he's acknowledging, he's saying, yeah, we've been a wicked people. We, we need to turn. This one guy came through and he started to proclaim this message. Let's turn away from this. And he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What is, what is this king basically saying? The king is basically, the question the king is asking is this. Can God forgive us? And then he says, who knows? Maybe. Another variation of this question he's basically asking is, how many sins can we have committed or could we commit before it's just too much for God? How many sins could we commit before God can't forgive us anymore? Or maybe we've done sins that are too big. But who knows, maybe God can forgive us. And he's asking that question, who knows? And I I shared a few weeks ago about how when I was a kid and I used to hear about the rapture and how, you know, at the end times when when Jesus returns, those who are are following Jesus will be taken up with him and those who aren't are going to remain and, and suffer and all this stuff. And I kept thinking, well, what if I didn't repent for the very last sin I committed? Am I like out now, you know, or 
how big of a sin do I have to commit before God's like, nope, you're going to just stay and suffer for a while, you know? <laughs> and I used to wonder that. It's basically the same question. What kind of sin could I commit before God can't forgive anymore? So let me ask you a question. I need your participation. If I stole something, can God forgive me? What, what if I were to lie about you? Could God forgive me? What if I committed adultery? Could God forgive me for that? All right. What if I harmed a vulnerable, innocent person? Could God forgive me for that? What if I murdered someone? Can God forgive me? Is there a limit to God's forgiveness? No. Now here's what I want us to do. Let's switch it around. Instead of pretending like we are one of the Ninevites in the city. Let's just pretend for just a moment. I know this doesn't happen in real life, but let's pretend for just a moment that maybe there are some Ninevites that live around our circle. Maybe there are some Ninevites that live in your house. Maybe you're sitting next to them today just for pretend. Is there a sin that's too big that you can't forgive? What if, fill in the blank, is there a limit to our forgiveness? That's really what we want to wrestle with today. Maybe they've done some horrible things. How many sins does it take for someone in your circle before there's a line that's drawn where you say, I can't forgive that? Where's your line? Because what I've discovered in my own life and just pastoring people that a lot of times we have a line. We don't want to admit we have a line, but we get up to this moment where something happens to us and we have a line. But I want you to understand today that the gospel story is a story of forgiveness. If it's anything, it's a story of forgiveness. And I know some of you, when I start talking about this, you're like, oh, great. He's talking about forgiving people today. Wish I never would have came. Because you got a list of people. How many of you guys would just admit that you've had an opportunity to forgive someone this last week? Would anybody just say, I've had an opportunity to forgive? Let me ask you another way. How many of you guys have had an opportunity where you needed to ask for forgiveness this past week? Okay, this is a topic that happens week in and week out. You never graduate from this topic because there's always an opportunity. But I want you to understand the gospel is a story of forgiveness if it's anything else. First Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, now we think of him as, a, as the Apostle Paul, but remember he was a horrible, wicked, evil person before he came to Christ. He was, if you were to try to rank people, he'd be on the, he'd be on the worst list, okay? But watch what he says in verse 12 of First Timothy 1. He says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Then he says this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Come on, somebody receive this. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
Is anybody thankful that Jesus came into this world to save? If you skip down to verse 19, he says something very interesting. Holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Holding on to, by rejecting what? Rejecting what he just said about forgiveness and that God came into the world to save sinners. He said, if you forget that, many people shipwreck their faith because they forget what Jesus has done for them and they forget that the gospel is a story of forgiveness. And by forgetting that, you end up, you end up going right against the line of shipwrecking your faith, and many have. It's because we get to this point where we start to say, we start to believe that the gospel doesn't work anymore. But how many of you guys know the gospel does work? It's just not allowed to work in and through us because of our hard heart. So this topic of forgiveness is very, very important. And, and how many of you guys would just admit that you struggle with forgiveness? I, my hand is up, okay? So not that that helps anyone, but I'm just telling you the honest truth. I struggle with forgiveness. Have you ever wondered this? Okay, those of you guys who are believers, have you ever wondered if I am a new creation in Christ? The Bible says I went from darkness to light. The Bible says that I was dead in my trespasses and sin, but now I've been made alive in Christ. I'm a brand new creation. I have brand new spiritual DNA. The power of Christ, the race Christ from the dead now lives in me. Have you ever wondered as a new creation Christian, if that is true, then why is it still hard for me to forgive? How can I be a brand new creation and still struggle to forgive? I want to tell you why today, why that struggle is. Because some of you in this room have even doubted whether you're even saved, whether you're even a believer. Because you thought, this isn't working for me. I want to show you why you can be a brand new creation in Christ and still struggle to forgive. The answer is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. Here's the reason why. We are made up of not just one part, we're made up of three parts. We have a, we're made up of our spirit, of our soul, which is our mind, our will, and our emotions, and then our physical body. And, and here's the thing, the battle is in our soul. You have been saved. I, I love this from Pastor Robert Morris. He talks about the spirit, soul, and body, but he talks about it in the sense of the past, the present, and the future. And he lays down something very foundational that we need to catch. And so let's watch Pastor Robert Morris explain this. So there's a past, present, future tense of salvation, and I want to talk about that. And I brought the board up because I want you to see what we're talking about, all right? So I want to talk about the past, the present, and the future tense of salvation. So this is salvation. And let's just take the verse in John, who was, who is, and who is to come. Right? Past, present, future. Everyone got that? Okay, let's address this to salvation. According to the Bible, you have been, you are being, we could say, you are being, and you will be 
saved. You follow me? You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Let me say it another way, and I showed you this when we talked about sickness, to understand sickness. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved as you learn and grow in Christ in your soul. Your soul's being converted from the power of sin, and you will be saved from the presence of sin. And just one other analogy, it's not really an analogy, but I don't have time to go in to explain all of it. You have been saved in your spirit, you are being saved, converted in your soul, and your body will be saved one day. Does everyone, everyone follow that? Okay, here's where I want to go. Here's my burden, though. I don't want to talk today about the present and the future tense. I want to talk about the past tense of salvation because, please hear me, if you don't understand that you have been, then you have an incorrect view that you are being and that you will be. If you don't understand what the Bible says about salvation in the past tense, let me say another way, if you do understand what salvation says, then you will have peace in the present and faith for the future. But if you don't understand past, then you will have pressure in the present and fear of the future. This is good, by the way, just so you know, <laughs> this is really, really good, all right? All right, so he lays down that foundation. Watchman Nee says it this way, God dwells in the spirit, self dwells in the soul, senses dwell in the body. So you have to understand first and foremost that you have been saved. Your spirit has been saved. You've been made alive. But in your soul, your mind, will, and your emotions, you are being saved. You're, through the renewing of your mind, things are changing inside of you. And one day at the resurrection, our bodies will be, will be complete, okay? Our goal in this life is to allow God to take over as much territory and hopefully all the territory that he possibly can in our life. This is how you can be saved, a brand new creation, and still struggle to forgive because the battle is in your soul. It's in your mind. It's in your will. It's in your emotions. So let me show you how this works. In an unsaved person, there's, this is the order of how things work with an unsaved person and what rules the other. The body or the senses rule the soul or rule the mind, the will and the emotions. In other words, they're led by the body or the senses that then tells the soul what to do and the spirit is dead. This is how, how it works. Now, some of us have seen, have you ever noticed that maybe you're, you're saved but you know an unsaved person and it just seems like, how many of you, let me put it this way, how many of you guys know an unsaved person who seems to be more saved than you are sometimes. Has anybody ever met somebody like that? You're like, well, they're act, they're behave, they're, they seem like they have more integrity. They're more of a better person. How does this work? The, they're not alive in Christ. But some people who are unsaved by the sheer force or strength of their own will or their desire to be good have mustered enough strength to move their soul into, into a, a, the position to rule their body. Their spirit is still dead, but their soul, their mind, will, and emotions has taken control or lead over their 
body, their senses, and they have mastered that, so they have integrity, they make good decisions. We call these people good people, yet they're still spiritually dead. Then we have a category called carnal Christians or fleshly Christians. This is where a lot of people end up hanging out for a while. And this is where our soul, our mind, will, and emotions is really in charge or over or has more rule than our spirit does. But our, we've, we, or at least over our body, but our, our mind, will, and emotions is still in control and we have not been led fully by the Spirit. Where we want to get to is Spirit-controlled or Spirit-led, where it's our spirit that then dictates to our soul how we're going to live life, which is then ruling over our senses and our body. But the battle is in our soul. And so many of us make, when our soul is in charge, we make soulish decisions. When our soul is in charge, we make we make emotional decisions, we make mind decisions, we make uh, decisions that we ought not make instead of spirit-led decisions. Most of those decisions aren't life-altering, although some of them are, but a lot of those decisions end up to inner, wound, or inner vows like we talked about last week. And if you missed last week, you didn't catch inner vows, you need to go back and catch that because it's going to be key for you. Because here's what happens. Has anybody ever broken a bone in their body before? Anybody ever broken something? Anybody ever had like some sort of, you know, big external wound in your life? Let let me just put it this way and share a story that happened when I was in construction working years ago and I was walking into one of the rooms as we were building it and another guy was putting up these 20 foot long two by six ceiling joists, 10 foot, 15 feet up in the air. He pulled it out a little bit too far off the ledge. I happened to walk right under the wrong spot at the wrong time. It swung down hit me right on the head, knocked me to the ground, put a big gash in the back of my head. Blood started squirting out everywhere, kids. It was awesome, guys. It was awesome. So there I am, and I, have, I still have the scar because I have no hair now. You can see it. Just walk behind me, creepily stare at the back of my head when the service is over, and you can probably see it. But I had this, this head wound, and we still had a couple hours till lunch break, and my dad was like, well, it's not lunch break yet, so let's put a stocking cap on that, pressure treat the wound, let's keep working. Blood's dripping down the back of my neck. We get closer to lunch break. They said, all right, let's check it out. We take off the stocking cap. Just by the look on their faces, I knew it was bad. Blood must have been squirting everywhere or something like, okay, it's lunch break. Let's take you to the emergency room. So we go to the emergency room finally. And they start to put, I needed stitches. And so I'm laying down there and they start to put these stitches in. The problem was they didn't numb it beforehand. So I felt the first three stitches, the needle running through my scalp. And I thought, this can't be normal. And then all of a sudden I heard one of them say, oops. And you don't want a doctor to say oops, right? (laughs) Then all of a sudden they did something and the pain went away. I had to have several stitches well, my, my point is this, uh, just because my point is I wanted to tell you a gross story. That's my point right there. No. When we have an external wound, we generally know what to do with it. We put a Band-Aid on it. We put stitches in it. We, we put a, a splint on it. We put a ca- Whatever we do, you know, it, it, we, we, we know what to do with external wounds that happen with us, right? But how many of you guys know we don't just have external wounds? We have internal wounds. And I'm not talking about physical I'm talking about inside of us, emotional or whatever you want to call them. 
The problem is most of us don't know what to do with internal wounds. Most of us don't know how to treat internal wounds. And since we don't know how to treat internal wounds, we end up treating them with the wrong medicine. Many people will try to self-medicate an internal wound. Many people will try to gossip about an internal wound. Many people will try to respond or reject others as a way to try to heal an inner wound. I, I could go down a whole list of what we do with internal wounds. Some of us will just clam up and just say, I'm never going to talk about that again. Many of us will make inner vows. Again, if you missed it last week, you've got to go back to that. But we, we, don't, we generally treat inner wounds with the wrong medicine. Back to the original question. Why is it hard to forgive if we've been saved, a brand new creation? Why is it hard for us to forgive? Let's look at the end of the story of Jonah because there's, a, there's an interesting story. Most of us just stop with the idea that Jonah got spit out of the belly of the fish and he went to Nineveh and Nineveh repented. And we think that's the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story. There's an interesting part at the end. Watch this in Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he could see what could become of the city. Because Jonah was upset. Remember, he was upset, first of all, for having to go. But then he was upset that God was going to, you know, give repentance to them and grant grace to them and mercy. And so he says, now the Lord appointed a plant. This is an interesting story. The Lord appoints a plant to make it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm. Now think about this story. God makes a plant grow, and then God speaks evidently to a little worm. And he gives him an assignment to go do something. So this worm... It says, when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Would anybody like to hang out with this guy? This guy <laughs> is just a mess, okay? He's just... He's like, I'm angry enough at this plant. Just kill me now. And he said, the Lord said, you pity the plant to which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God even wants to save the cows. That's how gracious God is. What's happening here? We could give a lot of reasons why we struggle with unforgiveness. We could talk about hurt. We could talk about people. We could talk about reject. We could talk about all these things. Let me give you one reason why I believe it's really hard for us to forgive. Pride. I believe pride is one of the biggest reasons why we struggle with forgiveness. Jonah, remember Jonah's prophecy. His prophecy was just this. Yet 40 days and Nineveh would be overthrown. Remember, he's a, he's a famous prophet. He walks into the city. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I believe that Jonah had a history with his people and he had unforgiveness and all that type of stuff. Here at the conclusion of the story, though, I believe is a window into why Jonah was angry enough to die. 
Jonah was angry enough to die, and he was upset because his prophecy would not be fulfilled. And his pride just couldn't let that happen. He was angry at God because of his pride. He was angry at the people because of his pride. Because he was a famous prophet that gave a prophecy. It didn't say, if you repent, you'll be saved. It it just said, yet 40 days, and then it will be overthrown. And then when it didn't happen, he was upset. And let unforgiveness stay in his heart. Do you realize that our pride leads us to a desire to get revenge? To even the score? To, quote, make things right or to set them right in our own eyes? Pride leads to revenge. Revenge is really the fruit of unforgiveness in our heart, if not in our actions. If Revenge is the fruit. It's the, if you plant unforgiveness in your heart and that tree grows up, revenge is going to be the fruit. You say, well, I didn't act on anything. But what's happening in your heart? What's happening in your heart? How many of you guys have ever heard a statement, something like this, like a life well lived is the best revenge or something like that? Has anybody ever heard something like that? I forget the the actual statement that I've heard, but I've always taken that to mean just move on with your life. Forget about the hurt that happened. Move on. Be free. Don't dwell on the situation. Just go live your life. And then as I thought about that more, I thought that's not what most people do with that statement. Most people look at that statement, a life well lived is the best revenge. They look at it like a life well lived is my revenge. And I'm going to make sure they know how well my life is being lived right now without them. I'm going to post it on social media. I'm going to put it everywhere else. I'm going to tell my friends about it. I'm going to put that out there. And that becomes a form of revenge. And we're not free. We're still tired. If you, if, if someone, if someone's downfall becomes part of your success, you're not free from the tormentor yet. If your success somehow sets the score even to the person who hurts you, you're not free. And it becomes a form of revenge. Well, I'm going to live my life, and I'm going to show them how good my life is. They made a mistake. They should have been with me. They they shouldn't have never hurt me. They should have never said that about me. I'm going to prove to them wrong. I'm going to prove them wrong that that what they said doesn't mean anything. And we could go on and on and on. But that is the fruit of unforgiveness, and that is a result of pride. And pride leads us to that. Now, here's the good news about all of this. The good news is when we win the battle in the area of unforgiveness, or we begin to forgive people, it changes, that one area changes other areas of our life. That one area is like a domino effect that triggers, you wonder why you're struggling in so many areas of your life? I'm telling you, this one area could set everything else free. It changes cultures. It changes everything. Uh, I was reading a book this week called Jesus Skeptic. It's a new book that came out. I just barely started, but they had a lot of great things in there. And one of the things that he talked about was this idea that biologists and stuff have have talked about for a while of a keystone species. And what a keystone species is simply uh, an ecosystem. There might be one particular animal or something like that, that if they aren't present, everything else changes. 
And they discovered, one of these areas they discovered this was in the 1920s. Over in, in California, there was a particular bay that a bunch of otters were in. And they, this is going to sound weird, but I'm just going to share it anyway because it, it has a good point. But, but these otters were there, and these hunters, they hunted them almost to near extinction there because the fur was, like, really valuable and stuff. And, and what they noticed is the whole ecosystem there completely died off. And under, underwater, there was like this, these, these forests of seaweed and kelp and all sorts of things that would like grow a hundred and something feet tall under the water. It was like these forests underwater that all of these, these uh, sea creatures would come from miles around to feed on these forests. Some of them would even travel thousands and thousands of miles. Great white sharks would travel thousands of miles to feed on this area. And when the otters were gone, everything died and everything just went away. Then in the 1970s, they reintroduced it to the area, and they noticed it was almost like miraculously everything came back to life. And they said, what is going on here? So they looked at it, and they found that there was this particular sea urchin. Again, this sounds weird, but this is what happened. There's a particular sea urchin that eats all of those forests underwater. And the only predator that would eat the sea urchin was the otter. So if you remove the otter, the sea urchins eat the forest, no animals can survive, no fish and everything can survive in there, and so then everything goes away. And he started to ask the question, what if this idea that Jesus brought and Jesus' followers, what if it was like a keystone species that whenever you introduce it to a culture, whenever you introduce it to a family, whenever you introduce I wonder if it begins to have a domino effect like that and begins to change everything. And then I thought about how I was in Yellowstone National Park this past spring. And I thought, I remember hearing a story about them reintroducing wolves into the park and how it had such a powerful effect. And I thought, and I started to look at that and I thought, well, this is kind of the same thing. They introduced these wolves and everything changed. So instead of me just telling you about it, it's a lot cooler if I show it to you. So let's watch. One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years, that the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park, and despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. 
bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes. And as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. Here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilised that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. pretty cool right I'm I'm not here to talk about animals okay just but I just the point I want to make is just how one small thing can start to have a ripple effect on other things and in in this book that I was reading he, he was talking about that effect that can happen whenever this idea of Jesus followers carrying this message of forgiveness of love and care for others When you introduce that into a society, what happens? You know, in higher education, a lot of times people are talking about how how Christianity, when it's introduced into a society, it causes culture to, to decline or it causes bad things to happen. And so a lot of people are warning against that. And when the truth is the exact opposite. Started looking even just in the United States. What about the top 10 hospitals in the United States? What what are their roots? And Went, went down this list. Number one, Mayo Clinic. How many of you guys have ever heard of the Mayo Clinic? Okay. Their founders were Christian. The first doctors were Christians. All motivated out of this desire from Jesus' teachings to, from their followers of Jesus to care for those who are hurting, to, to love those in, in need. Cleveland Clinic. Again, founders were Christians. The doctors were Christians. Johns Hopkins Hospital. The three, it's 
Founders Christians, Massachusetts General Hospital, founders were Christians, doctors were Christians, University of Michigan Hospital, founders were Christians, doctors were Christians, uh, UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco, again, Christians and Christians, UCLA, founders were Christians, Cedar sinai Medical Center, founders were, the, the founders were Jewish, but the first doctors were Christians and Christian educated, Stanford Health, uh, Stanford Hospital was Christians, founders Christians, Christian educated doctors, New York Presbyterian Hospital, again, founders founders are Christians. So here we have nine out of the top 10 were founded by Christian people with a desire to follow after Jesus. And even the others was Jewish with Christian doctors. The point is this, no matter how you feel about Christians or about Jesus, if you have a major medical issue, you want to be in one of these hospitals over the others. Because that keystone effect whenever you introduce Jesus into a culture, it starts to trigger good things. Whenever Jesus gets into a culture, it starts to trigger and have a a domino effect. It almost like it starts to change. Eventually, it starts to change the rivers. And you don't even understand why, but it's like this domino effect that begins to happen. Even in the area of like the treatment of women, if you look at the treatment of women in different cultures, you realize that, that in, in different areas, the, the women's rights and equal pay and the right to vote and the right not to be sold into marriage and all sorts of things, you realize that on average, Christians make up 75% of the populations in the, nation, in the nations that lead the world in the, those areas. And in fact, I could go even further that, that those areas, those countries with the worst women's rights are those where the Christianity or the Christians are outlawed or punished. Horrible things happen to women in countries where Jesus isn't introduced. Horrible, horrible things. If you have a daughter, if you have a, a mother, a, a sister, a, a, a wife, You want them, no matter how you feel about Jesus or how you feel about Christians, you want them living in a country where Jesus has had influence. Why? It's like a keystone effect. Whenever you introduce Jesus into a culture, everything begins to change for the good. I could go on into science and invention. I don't have time to go into all that, but the evidence is all there. I mean, from Newton and on, I mean, you can just go on and on and on. When Jesus, when followers of Jesus who love Jesus, who follow the teachings of Jesus, who introduce this idea of love and forgiveness and the power of God, when they introduce it into a culture, it's like this keystone effect that begins to affect everything. And if you remove it from a culture, everything deteriorates. So what am I, what am I saying? I'm saying this idea of forgiveness, which is the core of the gospel, when you introduce that into your culture, it has the same effect. It has this domino effect that begins to affect every other area of your life. But if you remove it from your culture, it also has an effect on your life. It also has an effect where you begin to deteriorate in other areas. I was listening to a podcast this week on death. Exciting, right? on what it feels like to go through that process of walking with dying people. And they were talking about how they were dealing with some people who were in hospice care and how they had treated every single physical pain they could. 
They'd medicated everything. They tried to make them comfortable. And yet patients in hospice would still complain of pain when the doctors and nurses had done everything that they knew was wrong. They'd treated everything they knew was wrong. And then they remembered that pain is not experienced necessarily in the body. Really, pain is experienced in your brain. So when you get pricked, it's not necessarily here that you feel. It's actually something that triggers in your brain. So in other words, you can have physical pain that you seem to be experiencing that really has nothing to do with your physical body. And so they decided that they would bring in some counselors and pastors with these people who were dying. And they started to deal with their unresolved issues. And all of a sudden, the pain went away. Because they were experiencing pain, not from a physical pain, but from an emotional pain. And along with that, this researcher proposed four different things that if you're dying, which I hope you're not today, but if you, if you ever find yourself in this place, he said, you need to have four statements on your lips. And I thought this was really interesting. Four statements on your lips. If you're dying, four statements are this. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Four statements. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. And as I heard that, I was reminded of the scripture in Hebrews chapter 3. Why are we waiting till we're dying to say these words? Because so many of us are dealing with pain right now that has nothing to do. I'll even say it this way. Some of you are experiencing physical pain today that has nothing to do with your physical body. It's because you're carrying around unforgiveness. It's because you're carrying around hurts that are not external wounds, but they're internal wounds. And this scripture out of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, But continually encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today. And there is an opportunity so that none of you will be hardened into settled rebellion by deceitfulness of sin, as cleverness, elusive glamour, and sophistication. What is he saying? While it's still called today. Have the worship team come back up as we close. It's really my whole challenge to you today. I've led all the way up to this point. And I just want to challenge you. Maybe even today, while it's still called today, are there those words you need to have on your lips towards someone in your life? Please forgive me. I forgive you. I'm going to challenge you even before the day is out that you say those words to someone. Some of you are in a place that you, maybe because of the situation, you can't take care of it today. Make a decision today that you're going to do that. Listen, I don't care what someone did to us. There's always, in Christ, a way to forgive. There's always a way to forgive. Remember, all the way back to the very beginning of the message, is there a sin that's too great that you can't forgive? And I'm going to say, in Jesus, there's not. In Jesus, there's not. While it's still called today. In, in chapter four of the book of Jonah, there are three characters. There's God, there's the Ninevites, and there's Jonah. And we get permission to be two of the three. We can be like God and we can offer forgiveness. We can be like the Ninevites and say, please forgive me. 
But we're never given the option to be Jonah and withhold forgiveness. While it's still called today. While it's still called today. Some of you need the rivers to change in your life. And you don't know how to get from point A to the rivers changing. And I really believe this area of unforgiveness, if we forget, it will shipwreck us in one way or the other. It will cause us to have a hard heart. It'll lead us to revenge. It will cause us to say, to push people away. We should never be pushing away. It will cause us to reject people before they can even accept us. It will cause all sorts of effects in our life. It's like removing Jesus from the ecosystem. Stuff starts to die. You think, well, this is just and this is right. No, forgiveness is just. Forgiveness is right when you're in Christ. And when Jesus enters your ecosystem in that way, stuff starts to change. And it may not be immediate. We're not supposed to demand the immediate. We're just supposed to walk in obedience. And as we walk in obedience, over time, one day we'll wake up and say, wow, this river's in a different place than what it was before. This is in a new, there's new life that wasn't here before. I never thought I'd see that again. Well, look at that over there. I never thought I would see that again. Well, I thought that was complete. I thought joy was completely gone from my life. One day you wake up and joy is there. I thought peace was completely gone from my life. One day you wake up and peace is sitting out on a tree out there, (laughs) you know. I never thought purpose was coming back. Now all of a sudden there's fresh purpose in my life. I believe it's because forgiveness. So would you guys stand up with me as we close? I I never said forgiveness was easy. But I know it's possible. So Jesus, we thank you for dying on a cross for us for taking our place, for taking our sin, for raising from the dead to give us life so that the power that raised you from the dead does live in us. We have been saved. Lord, today we want to walk out of this place a lot more free than when we came in. We want to walk out of this place with a forgiving, loving heart. I speak to walls right now that you were never authorized to build. Some of you have built walls that you were never authorized to build. You built them out of protection for yourself. You built them out of maybe even protection for other people in your life. But you built them on your own. And if you built those walls on your own, you're left to defend those walls on your own. Some of you need to tear that down today. You were never never authorized to build that wall. In Christ, you can be free. In Christ, here's what the wall is doing. 
It's not building a, it's, it's not keeping them out, it's keeping you in. You're building a cage for yourself. And today Jesus says you can be free. You can be free. You don't have to settle the score. You don't have to make it right. You don't have to do anything. You just have to walk in forgiveness. Forgiveness is always possible in Christ. Be free in Jesus. Don't just be free externally and then be bound internally. Would you open up your heart again to allow Jesus to come into the ecosystem of your life? Lord, we do thank you for that because we know when you come, life comes. When you come, everything is set right because you're there. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that people would be set free. Lord, heal wounds on our heart. Do the work that only you can do. We renew our mind today to your truth. We rest in you today in Jesus' name. Let's worship him one more time.